My name is Owen Flynn and welcome to episode 58 of the Trail Running Ireland podcast, sponsored by Jason Kyo Therapy Sports and Injury Clinic. Hey everybody, in this week's show we talk with Running Coach Ireland Head Coach Rennie Borg about four training metrics that might help bring your training to the next level this winter. Aerobic decoupling, efficiency factor, VAM and RPE versus IF. And Jason from JK Therapy Sports and Injury Clinic talks us through the benefits of biomechanical assessment and how it can help get you faster, learn about your body and keep the injuries away. Everybody, get your running gear on. Let's go. Hey guys, hope you're all enjoying your training despite all the bad weather. And hopefully you have maybe a new spring in your step over the last week or two as the body begins to recover from the summer racing and you're setting your sights on new goals for next year. But before we think about next year, we've got a few big races to look forward to over the coming weeks. And first off, best of luck to the Irish team who are going over to the World Mountain and Trail Running Championships in Thailand in less than two weeks' time. Supported by team manager and Imra's high performance officer, Leo Mann, we'll have a small but very, very elite team of Sarah McCormack, Zach Hanna and Paddy O'Leary traveling over to compete against roughly 900 of the world's best mountain and trail runners over short and long courses. And what a trio of athletes to have going over. And who knows, there might be a top five or even a medal in there somewhere. And as a little teaser to what's ahead in the World Championships, this weekend sees the 65th edition of Mountain Running's classic relay, Trofeo Vanoni, taking place in Italy. And we'll have strong Irish teams out in Italy this weekend as well, with Sarah McCormick using that race as her final warm-up race before the Worlds. And Sarah will be definitely one of the favourites in Italy as well. Speaking of Irish greats, one for the diary, everyone, as a plaque will be unveiled to the great John Lennon on 31st of October at 1pm in Cronin's Yard, Karen Tuchel. In his running career, John amassed 19 Imre titles and, of course, his accolade that trumps all his amazing performances in the hills of Ireland is his World Championships win from Switzerland in 1991. So if you're listening, John, we wish you well on October 31st. And if anybody wants to hear more about John's wonderful, wonderful mountain running career, we interviewed John back in episode 20, which you can find free of charge, of course, wherever you are listening to the podcast at the minute. A final one from the news round this week is just to mention the annual Southeastern Mountain Rescue Association there, 15 kilometre walk and run from Clonmel and up to the Comora Mountains. It's called the Long Way Round and that will take place on Saturday, November 26th at 3pm. A great cause and a free buff will be given out to everybody that gets an entry or a ticket into that race. Before we dial in Rennie and Jason, a big thank you as always to our Patreons. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for your support of the show. I hope you're all in good form, training and running well. Thanks a million guys for your continued support every month. And if anyone else would like to help out the show, 
when you finish maybe your run over the next few days please do pop over to patreon.com look us up the trail running ireland podcast whether it's on your laptop on your mobile phone and you can help us out there with as little as three euros a month okay let's keep the show going and let's keep on getting some great coaching and some great training tips to you that hopefully provide value for those three euros a month and let's call in our running coaching guru himself based in the heart of the wicklow mountains Rennie Borg from Running Coach Ireland. Rennie, good to have you on the show as always. Hopefully you've got through all that nasty weather this week okay. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of lightning and uh, no, no, no blackouts for us. Oh, and there's a few houses around here got knocked out. Um, but ironically, uh, I don't know if it's because we, we didn't get knocked out. Tomorrow they're turning off our electricity again for the whole day. <laughs> they did that a few weeks ago as well. Uh, so I'll be on, on mail duty instead. I'm going to mail out a lot of T-shirts from the race. You know, that's, that's the sort of, sort of work you can do without electricity. Sure, I suppose it's a good reason to get out of the house, to get up onto the hills. And maybe some of the things that we're going to talk about today, Rennie, can help us with our training over the weekend and over the coming weeks when we're looking just for anything new, anything different that can help us continue to progress our training on from last summer on from last season. And we're going to have a little chat today about some maybe some new metric terms that people might be able to apply to their training. But then, of course, we might start off with a quick debate, Randy, about how useful using scientific metrics can be. Because as we've said a couple of times on our conversations before, the most important thing is that we're just getting out running and that we're, you know, we're in tune with how our body feels and that we don't become a slave to the technology. But but sometimes having good metrics can help us progress in our training as well. Yeah, so you just want to make sure people don't tune out now that they hear metrics, because I know there's probably a lot of people who, who work in various industries listening who they hear it too much, right? You know, and myself having worked in business intelligence and fields like that, it was all about metrics and different types of metrics, leading metrics, lagging metrics, key performance indicators, and so on and so forth. Um, and obviously, this language um, has al- always existed in science and it has always existed in physiology, which is obviously a part of the sciences. And it simply goes back to that simple old adage that you know, what gets measured gets um, addressed. I think that's not actually the exact wording, but it's just as I was saying it there, it escaped me. Um, but basically it means that if it's it's a bit like the old thing that if you want to lose weight, um, they, you tended to have to monitor. Okay, so that you, you need to see, well, what is my weight today? Um, and that would be a key performance indicator if we use the, the new language, right? Because we know weight in all endurance and power sports is important. Um, not necessarily always lower is better. You know, there's an ideal weight, but you need to know where it is. And that means if you want to address your weight and to see if the steps you're taking to improve it in the direction that you want, you know, whether that's up or down, uh, or maybe it's just leaner, then you would look at body fat percentage instead of weight. So that'd be another metric. But you need to measure it and then you need to do something and then you need to measure it again. And that's really all a metric is, you know, so it doesn't have to be any more boring than that. Um, even people who are not using advanced metrics, nearly every single person listening to this is using metrics every daily run because you're measuring probably your pace and you're probably measuring your distance and the time that you ran 
um, there's a very high likelihood that you are measuring and interested in your heart rate as well. Although mm. I know that's going to be less people that are interested in pace and distance. Yeah. Yeah. And similarly, that's what you measure during the run. And then you have some other metrics like your weekly and yearly volume, you know, the amount of kilometers you run, the average pace you run them with. That's an aggregated metric, right? So that means you take an average of something, or you might be interested in, you know, what was my fastest run of the year, or what was my fastest run over 10K this year, you know? So really, even without being a data expert or having to dig up all sorts of really strange measurements that you don't understand, you already, anyone listening is probably working with metrics and they are every now and again comparing um, two similar measurements to see, am I actually improving or is the training that I'm doing working? Yeah. Here's a question for you, Renny, with your own training. Do you still measure your weekly mileage um, every week? Is it a figure that you look at? And the reason why I ask is because I remember when I first started running and over really the first seven or eight years, I would have every week accounted for in terms of how many miles that was. And I used to love comparing and contrasting as the weeks and the months went by. But it got to the stage where, a bit like what you were saying there, we're, we're sick of metrics in all walks of life. And I just got to the stage where I was very much in sync with what the body needed over different times of the year. And I just I stopped using weekly mileage and I just was making sure that I was getting out for time on feet every day. And once I knew that I was getting out for, say, 60 minutes every day, my long run at the weekend give or take maybe five or 10 minutes either side of those weekly runs and the long runs progressing um, as they should do over the course of the season, I knew that I was getting the job done. And it was just one less metric to be stressed out about and to be checking in on. So I, I don't know if you've had a similar experience or if you still measure it religiously. Yeah, I've changed in a similar direction. And you know, the, one of the main reasons is there's this old thing in science and statistics where they say that all models are wrong but some are useful. And that's true as well about metrics because it basically comes down to the fact that there is no model that explains reality exactly the way it is. It's always a simplification of what's actually going on. And that means if you, you, you need to then, instead of looking at just getting a very accurate figure that you want to hit like that, that like the accuracy really matters you know then you should ask yourself instead what decision does that metric or that measurement actually help you make so with that in mind when you are in the early stage of your career you often measure things very precisely because you are still trying to figure out what is an accurate training load for you you know so i think that's why for most of us it's very simple to say okay i'm going to run 60 kilometers a week as generally But as you develop over your career, you start to notice, well, 60 kilometers, they're not all made equally. You know, it depends how fast I run them. It depends how what terrain I run them on. Um, I don't get as much out of running 60K when I am dead tired than when I'm okay. Um, You know, maybe it's better to do 50, 70 and 40 rather than 60, 60 and 60. So you're just as you develop in running, um, you get a little bit more nuanced in understanding what what training load does your body need you know and that's what you explain there and then quite often what happens is you tend to move towards you're really still using a metric on you you're just for instance you're saying well i'm i'm going to get out every day that means daily workout and you had a rough figure let's say well it's going to be roughly an hour 
Mm-hmm. You know, so that's still metrics. It's just that you've kind of made them a little bit more fluent and a little yeah. bit more su- subjective. Qualitative metrics, that's another thing from the, from the lingo, right? Qualitative versus quantitative. Mm. there's no qualitative is often seen by people as less valuable or less accurate but that's not necessarily true um because for instance imagine i asked you um how much do you love your children own <laughs> and i said what, what would be the best way to give you a, a word to describe it with or to describe it on a scale from one to a hundred yeah <laughs> I, yeah i think the word might carry the essence of what you're trying to measure better yeah yeah Yeah, so it's like that as well with training so sometimes that's why you move from just adhering strictly to numbers you might say well i want to run daily feeling like i have a little bit left in the tank all the time yeah that's Uh, actually a metric but it's a qualitative one and i suppose looking back over say my own running journey over the last what nearly 20 years now Renny, it was very much when I got more and more into the trails and into the mountains that I stopped looking at the typical road metrics as well, because I very quickly realized that 90 minutes on the trails gives out a very different set of results than 90 minutes on the flat roads. So you could very easily get frustrated when you see your weekly mileage and speed metrics dropping down drastically as you go more onto the trails. But the quality of your running is not necessarily disimproving. And actually, the quality of your trail running is very much improving on the ascendancy. So that's maybe one of the reasons why uh, I stopped looking at the the weekly mileage. But we've got four, I think, very interesting, maybe new terms that the listeners haven't heard before, many that we can go through now. And again, just to, 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 to sell them to the listeners, if you like, that we're not just looking at new terms and new ways of analyzing data for the sake of it. These are terms that are are being used by some of the top international trail runners. And these four specifically that we have, we picked these up from an article on Training Peaks by the international trail running coach, Doug Stewart, who coaches the Romanian um, international pro trail runner, Robert Hagnall, who had a top 10 finish in the UTMB race last year. So it's the the metrics that he was using to progress um, over the course of his training cycle. And the first one, Rene is aerobic decoupling and then we're going to move on to efficiency factor VAM and RP versus IF so do you want to have a have a go at aerobic decoupling Rene first and maybe bring us through that one yeah it sounds complicated right so it's um it's called also pace to heart rate ratio so that means it's a metric that compares actually two measurements it compares your pace um, or power, if you're using a power meter, the system will take that instead because it's better, you know, it's normalized more, um, which means it takes into account hills and wind and things like that. Um, whereas the pace that's used in this metric is is what's called net graded pace. That's very similar to the grade adjusted pace that you see if you use Strava. So it's basically just a way to try and say, if we take the hills into account, what, what was the pace? And then they adjust. So it's like a flat pace, basically. And they then take the heart rate for the same part of the run and they divide that. And they get a figure. Now, the way this metric works, it actually adds another part to the equation, which is it calculates what is your output to input. So your pace to heart rate ratio for the first half of your workout. 
So if you're running 90 minutes, it'll look at the first 45 minutes. If you run 60, it'll look at the first 30 minutes compared to the second half. And what's the difference? And the way you look at it is like, look at if you bought a car and you drove it for 10 years, it might go, um, let's say, seven liters or let's say it goes 100 kilometers per gallon. I, I have no idea. Right. But that's for the first 10 years. Then the second 10 years, it goes only 97 kilometers per gallon. That means there's been a reduction in the input to output from the second half of your car's lifetime to from the first to the second. Right? That's what you expect. When things get older or more tired, more worn down, they don't, they're not as efficient. So basically what this metric, it's just looking at that in within a run to say, okay, how much efficiency are you dropping in terms of your input to output from the first half of any given run to the second half? And you could say, well, why would I want to measure that? You know, it sounds interesting, but why on earth would I want to know that? Well, there's actually a good reason. And it is that when you when that difference is more than 5%, it means that you were in zone three or higher. That means you were working with a mixture of fat and sugar. And whenever you do that, you will always see roughly more than 5% deterioration in basically your economy from the first half to the second half. So kind of a marathon pace and below, and whenever you want to train zone one and zone two, or if you want to do a test, you know, to find your aerobic threshold, you can actually use that little metric, which is in training peaks in this case, to, to get a really accurate representation of that. And that's something that's it's it's actually useful because it's not easy to get that. You know, it takes very sophisticated equipment to find things like aerobic threshold or to be absolutely sure that you are doing your running in zone two when you want to do it in zone two. So this is what you'd call um, a lagging metric. So it's something you look at when you come home. You can't look at it while you're out on the run. So it's just something you might have a suspicion that you are running your easy runs too hard. So this is a metric you'd use when you want to check that suspicion. So you'd basically go in and look at your runs and say, oh, for all my easy runs, my pace to heart rate is 7%. So that means I'm getting 7% worse economy out of my, in the second half of the runs I'm doing. That seems like I'm starting them too hard. And then you could start using that information to say, well, if I actually want to do proper zone two development, really build a proper base, not skip any steps, then I need to dose down in the coming weeks. You know, I'm going to run my easy run slower. So that, there's a very clear there. You can measure something and you can take an action that will improve your training based on that. And if I can just give maybe a real life example of what we're trying to explain there, that say, for example, we're out for our long Sunday run and the typical heart rate zone, maybe top end of zone two for our long Sunday runs, it might be 140. I think what you're saying, Rene, there is that we should try and keep within 5% of that heart rate as the run progresses. So say if 10% of 140 is 14 beats, we should try and keep within 5% of that. So no more than what, seven beats of the 140. So as we're getting towards the end of the run, that 140, we shouldn't really be going above, say, 147. I know that's a slightly simplified way of looking at it, but maybe in an effective one as well. Um, yeah, yes and no, in my opinion, Owen, because the, um, that 5% doesn't relate to the heart rate zone. It, it, it only relates to how much that ratio disimproves in the second half. But in general, when you're running in zone two, um, you know, it, you can run 
towards the top end of that, that's no problem, you know, as long as you can sustain it. In fact, it's more effective because the, the closer you run to the top of a zone, the more bang for your buck you get. But of course, it also has a greater stress load. So you need to make sure you can recover from that. Yeah. Um, what, but to see, the, the thing with zones is that we, we have zone two as being 10% below um, the aerobic threshold. So let's say it's 150, 10% of that is 15 so that's 135. That means you can, you, you, the first thing you should do is use the whole zone um, as you feel. Okay. So you, if you feel a bit rusty starting out, don't go straight to 150, you know, work, work your way up there. And you don't have to obviously then bang right through it, um, you know, and start running at 155. But at the same time, you have to be aware that there's this thing called cardiac drift. So mm. if you run as much over an hour, your heart rate, because you get more dehydrated, can actually go slightly above um, zone two without it being a huge problem because it's not because you've shifted energy systems. It's just because you your blood plasma volume has reduced. Mm, yeah. uh, so some coaches would say, oh, you should still stay strictly underneath it you know, to really keep a lid on the stress uh, load. But I am more of the school of opinion as long as you're now familiar with how it felt early on, just keep that feeling. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that'll, that'll do it. Um, I think once you go into taking, doing too many mathematical calculations in the run, it detracts too much from tuning into what it should feel like. Yeah. Yeah. And let's not forget just the old um, historical method, Renny, of just being able to have a nice conversation on your long Sunday run as well. And it doesn't have to be a full-flowing conversation. Once you can just have a little bit of a chat every now and again, that can be an often a, a very good non-scientific way of making sure that you're staying in zone one and zone two. And I remember one very good example, Renny, you gave in one of our segments a couple of months back of making sure that we're in the right zones in zone one and zone two, that when we are we can often problem solve very well and we can leave our house with our head full of problems and we can come back with lots of solutions if we're in the right zones yeah you know and we have the breathing as well but we've discussed that a lot so um yeah, yeah. We, okay. we, we, we might leave it and, and go to the next of these because I, I have the article here next to me it's very related Owen it's called efficiency factor yeah, um, I think there's actually a similar metric, if I remember right, in Strava and a few of the other tools. Um, but it, it's very, very similar. It's another metric that that analyzes this normalized graded pace or gap relative to the uh, average heart rate for a workout. So again, it's just a way to say, well, how much bang is this person getting for their buck for these runs? And obviously, they, they, they are then saying, if you can monitor the trend of that, you should become more efficient as your training goes ahead, you shouldn't become less efficient. And obviously that makes a lot of sense, right? Is like, if you get less efficient as your training is going on, then something is, is not right. Um, and they, they say here in the article that it can have to do with the intensity of volume being um, too low or too high, or it could be that you're overtrained or ill. <laughs> so it's, it's just kind of, it's one of those canary in the coal mine type of metrics. Uh, that if you are unsure whether your training is going the right direction and you're really frustrated, you can't see anything obvious, that could be a metric to look at. Um, but it works best when you actually compare similar workouts. Yeah. You know, so if, if you have a favorite 10K run, you do a lot, that could be a good one to look at, to, to see. Um, let's say if you're, in, if you're improving, you could go in and say, oh, yeah, I can see I've become more efficient. This metric is going up. Um, 
that's you know that's really all you would need to confirm but for me that's personally i think it's it's one of the le- the less useful um unless you're doing something very specific let's say you're actually working on your running economy because maybe you've hit a brick wall with nearly everything else um mm. and you are trying maybe some drills or some plyometrics or something to try and improve your um running economy you know which is that's one of the ways to do it just running a lot is another way to do it but um you could use that metric you could decide that's going to be the one that i will employ to see if i'm actually making myself better rather than worse but yeah but it is a little bit abstract and if you run over a lot of different courses with a lot of different weather conditions a lot of the data wouldn't be very comparable Absolutely. And like, like what we've said before, and as well, lots of different things can, inter- can interfere with how you feel on the day, your speed, your heart rate, stress in life, how you slept that night, what you ate that morning. But I, I must admit, I do like this one myself that I have a specific stretch of 500 meters that I run on pretty much four or five days a week. So as I'm running on this 500 meter stretch, I always glance down on my watch and I, I know the figures exactly where I want to be in terms of, okay, if I'm at towards the end of my run, um, if I'm at 140, I'd love to be at say three minutes, 50 seconds per kilometer. So I always like checking in to see, okay, I'm at 350, or oh, today I'm at 150 heart rate, or oh, today I'm at 135, great. And it's just looking for then what the pattern is over a couple of weeks as the weeks go by. Because naturally at the start of the season, you know, if you're running that, say in this case, say let's say four minutes, you might be at 150. But then as you get fit, fitter and fitter, as you're on that same stretch of 500 meters, that 150 might be down at 140 and you're still at four minutes and you get more and more efficient as what we're talking about there. So it can be useful. But again, if you're on the same route um, over and over again and the same lifestyle factors surrounding each run as well, which can be always hard. Then the next one, Renny, it's a lovely name and it's the best name of a lot of them. The VAM, the Velocita Essenziale Media, the VAM. Tell us about the VAM, Renny. Yeah, I have a very personal relationship to this because I wrote an article about it uh, on my old blog, mountainrunner.com, uh, you know, a long, long time ago um, because I had heard about it from, um, you know, the very infamous Tour de France um, doctor, Michele Ferrari, yes. uh, who, who was involved in a lot of doping, I believe. But he actually invented this uh, metric and that's why it has the, the colorful Italian name. You, it's also in English, it's been translated as vertical ascent meters. And I like it because it's a, it's, it's a metric that's very useful for mountain runners because what it does is it measures the uh, average climbing speed per hour. Mm. But if you run 10 minutes or let's say you run a three minute hill rep, it's obviously, you know, you can still calculate what would the vertical rate have been if you had climbed for an hour so something you can use this metric for is you you can look at the sort of climbing speed you need for your race so you could say well how long is the climb going to take uh let's say it's an imra race it might take you 30 minutes and you can say well how many uh, meters are there in that um oh i'm climbing 500 meters you know so that that would be 500 meters in half an hour is a vertical ascent meter of a thousand meters per hour mm-hmm. and that actually happens to be a very good ratio and um, for those who are very interested strava loves measuring this so that's if you if you're really interested in van and refining 
your vertical speed, then you can actually go in and look at some of the key uphill segments uh, because obviously nearly all interesting climbs in the whole world, you know, you can find if you go on Strava as a segment. And you can actually go in and see what are the top rates and, and, and what constitutes a good climb on yeah. that. Um, you know, and it'll actually give you a van. Not for the very short ones, I've noticed for some reason. It's only for the bigger climbs that it'll show it to you. Okay. So, yeah. so that would give you a good idea. For instance, let's say you want to win a race, you know, and you you know, well, to win it, the winner ran it in this. You could go and see, well, what sort of climbing speed did they actually have? Um, and then you can design hill reps around that. So that's the action out of this thing. You know, you could design a hill rep where you say, well, I want to climb a thousand meters per hour, but my rep is only three minutes. So you have to divide that by 20. You know, so if you wanted to climb a thousand vertical meters per hour divided by 20, that's 50. So that means you need to climb 50 meters vertical in three minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, and I suppose then when the VAM improvement begins to slow, that's probably a good indicator then that we need to progress on to a new hill training stimulus, whether it's longer, whether there's more inclination on it there, but just to keep a measurement of it and to track it over the course of the season. Yeah, because it's a little bit like weights, basically, that, you know, if um, it's, it's very hard to get a, a high VAM if your slope is very shallow. You know, because you simply can't climb further, Uh, you know, whereas if your hill is very steep, you can get up a lot of vertical meters much quicker, even though your vertical speed, sorry, your horizontal speed slows down a bit. But this is this is what happens. We know that from experience. So you could look at that to say, well, actually, with on the hill I have at the moment, I'm kind of running out of room. I can't make it any harder in terms of vertical per per hour so i'm going to go search for um a harder hill or you could see what you're saying there that you're you're slowing down on the hill rep that you have now depending on the hill rep you have there might be a simpler way you could do that right if you had a a set three what would you say three four hundred meter hill rep that you use you could just look at the time as well right you know if, if you start to slow down at the same intensity, then obviously your training is starting to get stale. Yeah. So just yeah. in case people don't want to be involved in all this VAM stuff, you know, as long as you're comparing the exact same climb, you could substitute time to climb it at the same effort. Sure. If you're trying to look whether you're getting slower, but but with the big caveat in the hills that sometimes the surface conditions change, you know, so that's another thing you need to be aware of. Yeah. I, I'm just smiling here to myself, Rene, um, thinking about all the hill sessions and hill work I used to do with Jerry Kiernan and the group there and even preparing for Irish teams at the back of Marty Park up the Tree Rock. And I'm just thinking the reaction I would have got if I had to say to Jerry, Jerry, um, what was our van for, for that session there? I'm sure he would have thrown his eyes up to heaven i said what what on heaven's name were you talking about Go yeah no, i'll be i'll be honest with you and i although i really like this metric um i mainly use it to plan what i need to be able to do for very long climbs yeah yeah, yeah. for the, for that i think it's really really useful i use it much less to plan the individual sessions it should be said for any cyclist looking it's worth reading the articles about it for cycling because it's a huge thing in professional cycling you know, and yeah. they, they actually train much more specifically to it. So just maybe if people want to explore that a little bit more. Um, sure. It's also used to catch out whether people are still doping because they look a lot at the vertical ascent meters that people like Pantani had, you know, back in the, the heydays of doping. 
yeah. and versus what they see now. You know, it's one of these things that can kind of uh, can be a red flag. Yeah, I've heard some of the experts talking about some of the stages on the tour that France are right using that. The the last one, Rennie, that we have for today, and I really like um, these ones, RPE versus IF, rate of perceived exertion. Basically, I think how you're feeling on any giving, given workout, a very subjective measure. And then the, the intensity factor, which uses heart rate, pace and power data to give us a number on, again, training peaks. So it's RPE versus IF. What do you think of this one? Yeah, I think it's decent. Um, the like intensity factor, yeah. So basically is a way to try and quantify the exertion that you had. And it does that by looking at what was the intensity for over a certain duration for your run compared to your threshold pace and heart rate. So that's the only weakness of it. It does rely on the whatever system you use that it is able to pick up accurately on that mm. because that's why it's a relative effort. Um, yeah. But if we assume that you get good data, you're basically comparing what is a, the quantitative effort with a subjective effort, which is RP, which we've talked about a lot, excuse me, which is the rating of perceived exertion. So you could say, well, if you're actually able to keep higher intensities factors at less RPE, that usually means that you are getting fresher. So that's, that's for instance, they, they mentioned an example in this article. That's what you want to see when you go into the taper weeks. Because as you get fresher, it gets easier to do intensity. Yeah. You know, which just makes total sense. So that, that could be a good chart if you're kind of unsure whether you're tapering enough. Um, but you do have to measure both then. So you need to commit to using a tool that measures IF. And you also need to fill in RPE for your workout. That's easy to do if you have training peaks or, and in some other tools. But you just need to make a habit of it. You finish your run and you go in and say, how hard was that from 1 to 10? Yeah, because otherwise you will have gaps in the measurement and then it very, very quickly, it just becomes meaningless. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, lots of good content there today. And I might just go over the, the four names again in case people want to Google them later on when they get back to their desk. Aerobic decoupling, efficiency factor, VAM, and then RPE versus IF. And just for people as well, not to get too stressed out about trying to figure them out or to make sure that they're in all their training files. A lot of the good software training platforms, certainly the one that we use on a training peaks, they calculate a lot of this for you as well so you don't need to start you know getting out the calculator getting out the excel sheets a lot of this stuff is there you might just need to maybe look around the performance management charts on the likes of training peaks and so on just to find it but it is all there it's, it's all very um easy to get i think isn't it yeah i think the take-home message is before you start focusing on a metric just decide what actions you're going to take when you measure it yeah, you know, because then you know that it, you're not wasting your time. Like you actually want to take some kind of, of of step once you've looked at it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Watches more and more are trying to take over that next step. You know, the analysis step. They're trying to, you know, giving you show you the training effect, for instance. You know, which gives you that that is a way to to tell you. You know, is the load that you just had. If I look at your relative fitness and the training you're normally doing, um, was that enough to just maintain it, or was it enough to improve it, or was it probably too much? Um, you know, and and then give you that instantaneous feedback afterwards. Um, and there's there's a few different things 
uh, that Garmin and, and other watches they they have. So you know, if you're really not in the mood for analysis, then you should probably get that watch or hire someone to do it for you. Yeah. Um, and just before we go, Renny, is there any metric that you actually really look out for on any of your own runs, for example? For example, one metric that I love to look at every day, and it's actually nothing to do with running, but when I wake up in the morning time, my resting heart rate over the course of the night, I love just to make sure that it's right down where it should be and that I'm good to go for a hard day's session. That's the one key thing that I actually religiously look at every day. Is there anything that you look at? Yeah, I used to do similar own and then I measured HIV, but I actually got out of the habit because I feel I have a reasonably good idea on my mood now. Okay. So that's kind of mood that's by it's not unscientific. It's it's it's, it's a huge it's a huge predictor. If you're really grumpy and kind of angry or or a little bit with a short fuse, it's a really good sign that you if you measured your resting heart rate, you'd probably find it was high, right? So that's <laughs> it, it's a it's a lead indicator of that. Um but no, now that you say no, I, I keep it fairly simple. I'm very power-based these days, Owen. Um, so I like to look at the average power for my workouts instead of the pace because I run on such varying courses. Okay. You know, so that's the one I'm I'm most interested in. And then apart from that, really, RP is huge for me. Um, I really like to gauge in. Also, if you have injuries, this is maybe an interesting one. My limiting factor in training is how my body feels, how my joint feels. Mm. So that is actually the primary thing I look at when I start a run is how do my joints feel today? And I know them so well now that I know when I can run hard like I used to do when there was no issues whatsoever. And then I tend to do that. And I know when they're creaky. And then I just take it easy, you know? So in, in that way, my life has been simplified Owen, in that that is the first constraint. So that tends to be the one that dictates it for me. But if yeah. that didn't exist, you know, if, if I never felt any kind of, of little niggles, I would look for something like you are doing, you know, that would be my next focus then to say, how stressed do I think the nervous system is, you know? And then I would look at something like the HRV or just a simple old heart rate. Yeah, well, it's really, I think it's great to bring some of the new terms to the listeners like we did today. But I think what you just finished on there still remains the most important um, metric of all, how the legs feel <laughs> on any given day. Um, and if there's a niggle or a strain there, no matter what numbers the watch or the app is telling you on your phone, if there is a strain there, do not try and run through it. Uh, you'll be asking for trouble. And maybe on that note, Renny, we might just call it a day for today. Yeah, although I nearly misled, I don't want to mislead people completely on. So let's leave a teaser for a future topic because I don't have a metric I measure daily, but I do decide on the priority of every training block by testing my general physiological profile, you know, to see what is currently holding me back the most. And and I, I try to get those workouts then as the focus for the next kind of six weeks, usually. But that's not a daily thing. But just maybe that's something we have talked about a little bit before. Maybe we can talk about it again in the future. Sure thing, Renny. Yeah, okay. Listen, Renny, really enjoyable as always. And thanks for your time. And guys, if you want to hear more from Renny, you can get him on Running Coach Ireland. Renny, until next week, thanks a million, mate. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Owen.
for our feature interview this week. It's a real treat to welcome back to the show our healer, our injury prevention specialist, Jason Kyo. Since 2012, Jason has specialised in running technique and has successfully trained and healed hundreds and hundreds of runners to overcome chronic injuries and become faster, more efficient athletes. He puts running technique and mobility as the primary foundation all other physical aspects of training should be built upon. I love talking to Jason as not only is he fantastic at what he does in JK therapy, but he is a fierce competitor as well. Jason won the titles, Irish Mountain Running Champion and King of the Mountains in 2015 and 2017. He represented Ireland in mountain running and he is one of only a handful of runners who have won the prestigious Karen Tuchel Mountain Race, winning it in 2011 and 2017. Great to have you back with us on the show again. And I'm really looking forward, Jason, to this segment here because we're going to talk about something that's very important for our listeners in lots of different ways, Jason, from anybody that wants to run faster or somebody that wants to learn about their body or somebody maybe that's a little bit broken and just who needs a different type of solution maybe to what they've found elsewhere. So I think, Jason, it's great to have you back and we're going to talk about biomechanical running assessments. Owen, how are you? Great to be back. Um, yeah, looking forward to today's uh, segment. Uh, hello to all your listeners out there. Uh, just finished a busy day here in the clinic, and uh, so I've sacrificed today's run to to be here. <laughs> well, it's, it, it, that's it's great for myself, Jason. It's great for the listeners because you're somebody that you have your skin in the game, that you are booked up, you're fully booked up all the time, which means that you're doing good work. That means that these running assessments that you're doing they're working for people so uh, no matter who it is that's listening whether they want to go faster whether they want to learn or they want to keep those injuries away let's get straight into it and tell us about the work that you do Jason that's helping so many people and and one of the the key things that you're doing and it's going very well are the running assessments for anybody that's thinking of getting one or thinks that they might need one what does it involve so um, one of the services I offer is a a two-hour biomechanical assessment and uh, three, uh, generally three different types of, of uh, people that come into me for this. So um, we've got someone who just kind of wants to get a bit faster with the running. So running is going well, but they want to just progress a bit further. And they, they think they might be able to get some extra percentage gains from uh, having their technique looked at. Um, the other type of person would be someone who's maybe just new to running. They're only at it maybe a year or two. And they might have seen a, little, a few little niggles or injuries coming in. And they know that running technique is important, but they don't quite know why or, or how it applies uh, to them. And they might have aspirations to do sort of some longer endurance runs, um, you know, maybe up to um, you know half marathon, marathon, maybe even ultra. In some cases, people just like to jump straight in. And then I guess the, the majority of, of the, the, the people would come to me then would be for a sort of injury investigation, um, which we can... Uh, trace back to how it is they're running if running is their primary uh, means of sport so uh, they might have had an injury for you know a couple of years they've spent uh, a lot of money with um, uh, with various different types of therapies um, or you know uh, cross-training um, methods such as you know you know uh, I don't know Pilates or it could have been yoga or you know different types of strength and conditioning um, or, th- or general therapy 
and they just can't uh, they just can't get a, a purple streak going of running. So they're always the running is always interrupted. You know, they've got maybe four or five weeks of good running, then bang, out of nowhere, another injury comes. They're a week or two out, and then um, they can't do the training they need to do to progress as they are. So so training is very stop go for them. So they're looking for answers there, and 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 uh, that's like a, it's, it's pretty much like an investigation um, that we do in that session. And it's very different to say the gait analysis that you might get done in the running shoe shops, where they'll see you know if you're pronating, if you're underpronating, overpronating, and then they'll give you a pair of shoes, and that's the be be all end all solution to all your running problems. There's your shoe that fits your stride, your gait. Off you go. This is a lot more in-depth than that. And maybe bring us through, Jasper, what is involved in it. Like, are you watching people run on a treadmill over a period of time at different paces? Or, or how do you get to produce the, the results and the takeaways that people can take home with them? Yeah, so I, I guess uh, the difference between the gait analysis and, and what I'm doing here is that gait analysis is on taking video from behind and they're focusing on the foot and the, how the foot lands and strikes. And then they try to get a shoe to correct whatever they see going on there. So whether that is overpronation or supinated landing on the outside of the foot or, or whatever the case may be. But we have to remember that, you know, the shoe industry is, is, a, is a billion dollar industry. And it's all about sales. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, spe speaking to someone who's designed shoes before, you know, shoes are designed, uh, you know, from a designer's perspective to be comfortable for the first 20 minutes of wearing them. And that's generally how long it takes to find the right fit when you go to the store. And then you buy the shoe and then, sure, that's not their problem anymore. Now, um, the shoe is a tool. And uh, but what we're doing here is if I was to change just something slightly about your running technique, you might need a completely different shoe. So it, it kind of, it's, they don't go, they don't go hand in hand, you know, trying to get the right shoe to, to uh, for someone and then versus, you know, how they're running with their posture or, or whatever. So there's two aspects, I guess, when we look at someone running. So when I look at them, I'm looking, first of all, I'm doing a mobility assessment to see how their bones move, how their muscles move and how their general mobility is. And we look at that and how the feet move. So how they pronate, how they supinate going, you know, when you turn, we're looking at the mobility of, of the ankles. Do you have good uh, plantar flexion? Do you have good dorsiflexion? We're having a look at um, your hip mobility. Can you uh, sit in different resting positions on the floor um, without feeling tight and sore? Um, how the, how your deep squat is. So uh, one of the, one of the best uh, ways to look at a runner is in a deep squat and if they can't do a deep squat that immediately raises a red flag for me and we go poking around to see exactly what is preventing uh, uh, doing a deep squat generally most people who have a, a good resting deep squats or some people would call it like an asian squat or you see a slavic squat uh, squat and um, those people generally have good overall mobility and also uh, a lot of the time much less injuries or, or uh, much less prone to injury what percentage, Jason, of people is it that come to you that can actually do a decent deep squat? Because if anybody's just at home listening and just Google what a good deep squat looks like with the with, with the ass essentially going right down to the to the floor and you're back in a lovely straight kind of ankle or angle as opposed to the, the hunched shoulders, 
which maybe the majority of people do. I don't know, like, without people having worked on it, Jason, is it something that people can still do? Or do you find that people who have been working in offices all their lives, that ability to do a deep squat just goes? Yeah, with, with all movements and mobility, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it, right? So you're we're all born being able to do a deep squat. So you have children on, I have children, um, I have a two and a four-year-old, um, and when they sit down and play on the ground, they're sitting in this lovely deep squat and it looks like nothing to them. So your deep squat is, is basically your portable chair that you have around with you at any stage. So if you go to a different, uh, if you go to Asia or, or Vietnam, which I've been to, they sit down at the, at the bus stop, they're sitting in their deep squat, having a cigarette, and they might be there for half an hour and it's, it's very comfortable. And then when the bus comes, they flick their cigarette away and jump onto the bus and off they go. Um, so the people that come into me, I'd say uh, maybe about 20, 15, 20% would do what we call a traditional squat. So that's as they, they, if you can imagine doing a squat in an exercise class where you come down and your, your knees hit maybe a 90 degree angle and your bum's yeah. going to halfway down. So there are people who just cannot go down any lower than that. They're stuck in that position there. That's what we call a traditional Western squat. Yeah. The, next, the next level down will be someone who can get into a deep squat but their toes are off the ground, the front of their foot is off the ground, they've got a lot of weight uh, on the back on the heels and they're about to fall over. If I went over to them and gave them a little push in their shoulder, they'd fall backwards on the floor. And, and they're probably the ones that have, are coming with the injuries, I suspect, as well. <laughs> well, traditional and unskilled, definitely. Um, and then I see very few skilled deep squat. And a skilled deep squat is someone who can sit down there very comfortable and have no pain, have no tightness anywhere in the hips or ankles or knees or anywhere like that and that's that would be a skilled deep squat and um, now unfortunately we I'm, I'm, we're starting to see i'm starting to see a lot of young children come in so like parents would would call me up and say look my my child doesn't run like all the other children on the on the gap pitch or the football pitch can you help them and you know when we when we bring them in and have a have a look at this 12 or 13 or 14 year old they're actually, they can only do a traditional Western squat. They've completely lost their deep squat at age, at such a young age, which is yeah. it's tragic is what it is because that child now is set up for like pain and stiffness and probably not a very bright future in, in sports, you know, as they get older because they'll just be very prone to injury. Yeah, because they've probably been sitting in the classroom for, what, 10 years nearly at that stage and then going home and sitting at home in front of the TV. So, yeah, yeah. let's not go there. Let's not go there. Um, but tell us, Jason, about when you see these issues, um, how can we go about fixing them? Okay, so, um, so yeah, hardware is, is, is mobility. So that's when your, your skin has to be able to stretch, your fascia, which is like a little, um, little translucent, type of sausage skin covering of, of your muscles that has to stretch the muscles have to stretch the, the ligaments and the tendons need to stretch so if you've got any restriction there they all have to be stretched out again and mobilized and that takes time like that's not something that happens in, in a week or two weeks or or three weeks it, it takes a, a like a minimum of six weeks before we start seeing any sort of a meaningful change when when we try to improve mobility so ankle mobility or hip mobility or spine mobility it takes literally six weeks of a lot of work on it so that's not something i can do for clients but i basically what i do is i rip them apart and say you can't do this 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 and this which you should be able to do and this is how you get there and so that's the plan i give yeah. after um, can you speed that the, the elimination of that stiffness up 
by some of the techniques that you do in the clinic, Jason, like um, dry needling, um, working on trigger points, hands-on with clients. It is because I'm sure what happens a lot of runners is they might have it, have a tight calf, but they can get away with it for a couple of weeks. And then it becomes a little bit sore, but they've got a race coming up. So I'll just hang on for another month. I'll just keep on training. So by the time they get to their race, they've done their race, but they could have had a tight calf for three months. And it becomes chronic then. And then that stiffness just will not go away. And it might result in actually a proper full-blown injury then. So than- yeah, so you, you can do that, right? So the, the, the supercharged quick shortcut way is you get some therapy work on it and specifically drawing needling, it, it gets the it gets the quickest results when we release the, the little trigger points or the little knots which cause tightness and great. Okay. So that is something you can do. But one of the things that uh, I try to show uh, all my clients in biomechanical assessments or just in normal therapy sessions is how to release tissue themselves. And that's a soft tissue release protocol that I use. So that's like getting your hockey ball or your baseball or your schlitter or your terracane or your stick or whatever it is, your foam roller, and actually learning how to find a trigger point rather than just rolling up and down aimlessly, like trying to focus in, find the source spots, find the trigger points, and then learn how to release those yourself. So then you become your own therapist and you can be doing a lot of the work yourself. And then you just come to me when you when you need a real help and handout. So that's a way we, we could, you can, yeah, sort of accelerate that process of getting mobility back. But the best way is to put it as part of your daily lifestyle. So I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, I'm a big fan of sitting on the floor, on a hard floor, um, and when you sit on a hard floor in, in lots of different resting positions, right? It doesn't matter what position it is, you have to move your bones in a certain way that the muscles have no choice but to stretch naturally. So when you when you think about, you know, when you look at, at mobility through an evolutionary lens, if you think about your grandfathers or your great-grandfathers, they probably were very um agile and very mobile people they probably had a manual labor job they probably could do a, a deep uh, squat and uh, it would be no problem so they probably had very few injuries you know unless it was trauma of some sort and one thing you'll notice is that they were had a very active lifestyle they moved their bones in, in different ways which they were naturally stretching the muscles and if we go back far enough you know the modern chair is only about 400 years old so before that we were ground living People, you know, if you go to places like uh, Africa or, or Southeast Asia or Japan or places like this, they spend time sitting on the floor when they socialize, when they cook, when they work, when they eat. So, you know, we don't do that anymore. So as a result, we, we're not using our full capability and then we're going to seize up and get stiff. And then we have to rely on, on traditional stretching. Like, I don't have to worry about stretching anymore because I just sit on the floor. So like people, people say, you know, oh, I know I should stretch. Like that's the, it's like people come into confessions to be like, and I know I should stretch and I don't, I don't stretch enough and I probably should. And I'm like, well, I don't stretch. But what I do is in my, if I'm sitting down with the kids or playing with the kids or if I'm relaxing and, you know, we're watching something, I'll be sitting on the floor. We'll be sitting on the couch. And that's just a way to me to naturally stretch my, um, my, my muscles and, uh, and keep on top of my, my mobility. Yeah, I know one of the elements of the assessment that you do, Jason, is the, the homework that you give the, the clients as, as they leave and for the exercises for them to do. And I know one of the sets is things like um, box jumping and how important that can be 
just to check in and first of all to make sure that your body can perform a simple jump onto a step or can actually jump off a step. And I must be honest, Jason, I've actually become very lazy and even a little bit fearful about doing little jumps like this, just because I know there's so much tension and stiffness there that I can run all day long, but ask me to do a little explosive jump up or down. And I'm going to kind of hesitate for a little while, but I know all runners should be able to do something simple like that but yeah, we can just fall out of the habit of doing it and just lose that flexibility, lose that bounce that's so important. So, you know, when you, um, when you jump all the time on, you just don't realize it. Like you're doing a lot of mileage and your running is literally jumping from one foot to the other. So when I see someone who is not running as I as I want, and I, I guess we, I didn't really explain that, but what we're primarily looking at is someone who's who is a was a very heavy overstride and heel strike. So when you have a, a heel strike, you're landing on a straight knee and you're not using your shock absorbers as, as you would yeah. uh, or as you're supposed to, right? And that's what that's what all the injuries can be traced back to. So if you're a runner, you're getting injured. Um, it's probably because of your technique. Yeah. Now, what we're trying to do with the box jumps is we're trying to reintroduce jumping to the person um, and teach their brain that there's a better way to do it. So, in fact, people know it instinctively. Most of the time when I get someone running here, they'll run on their heels on the treadmill, where, which is where I do my analysis. And then if I ask them to take off their shoes, 90% of them will land on a different part of the foot. They won't land on the heel anymore because it actually yeah. hurts. So their brain knows instinctively, but it's just that when they have a heavily cushioned shoe on, the brain can't distinguish that it should hurt me when I land on the heel. So it just says, ah, oh, that's fine. You plow away there. And you can do that, right? People land on their heels all the time. So for some people, it's not an issue. Um, um, those people are, are few and far between, to be honest. Um, mm. uh, but but for the majority of the people, they'll just they'll be continuously tied, stiff, and they're they're regularly injured, like two or three injuries a year at least. Um, so when we're doing the, the the step jumps, what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach their brain that it's okay to land on their springs. And, it, you know, if I was to ask you um, to, to stand up on a chair or, or a box and to land on straight legs, you wouldn't do it. Your no, brain, no, no, no. Yeah, Any type of a jump off a box, I'd probably hesitate. But like what you just said there, Jason, I'm a shocking heel striker. I've been heel striking all my life. And that's probably why I can't jump up and down on boxes now as a result. Well, you know, as I said to you, some people do get away with it, but, you know, there, there's there's a price to pay. So you can go and run on your heels, uh, you know, but, uh, and it's actually easier. It's less energy to run on your heels when you, when you, when you run, but the, but the, the trade-off is injury and stiffness. So, yeah. you know, if you want to be training seven days a week and you want to be performing to, you know, your, your highest capability, then, you know, that's probably not the way you're going to be doing it. And, yeah. The thing about modern footwear is that, as you know now, the shoes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we have, you know, the carbon plate shoes and that. And that does the senses even further. So, you know, it's um, it, it can be it's a hard one to it's a hard one for people to 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 maybe see the, the, the cost benefit, you know, uh, yeah. ratio to it. And um, some of the other exercises just that I know that you recommend to people as well. And and your reports are very good, Jason, because I've seen them. And 
you give full photographs of the different stages of all the different exercises that are needed. Um, and when I went through them, because I, I did a lot of these exercises when I was working with yourself and many, many years ago when I was going through my injury problems. And thankfully, all the exercises that you guys recommended at the time, they were all brilliant. And I found them actually all very relaxing, Jason, as well. Things like the, the chest openers, just the thoracic mobilizers to open up your lungs, to, to try and just work on relaxing your shoulders. Not only will they improve your running, but as you're doing these exercises, you know, you don't have your mobile phone in your hand um, and you, you, there's a great sense of well-being that you're actually just fixing and opening up your body again. And I remember doing the chest openers, for example, and, and it, was, it was a great one. Yeah, so yeah, and for anyone listening, a chest opener is, is basically when you get a, a broomstick handle over your head and you're just trying to keep your arms locked out straight and bring it behind you and just give extension into the spine. So extension is, is how we get faster. We, we extend from our spine and we fall forward. So if you don't have very good uh, uh, spine extension, like you're not going to be as fast as you could be. So, you know, again, when we're, when we're doing something like uh, chest openers, that's that's covering two different different aspects. One is that we're trying to make a hardware change. So we're trying to stretch all the tissue and mus muscle around the around the chest, the shoulders and the spine. We're trying to mobilize the spine. So that's all hardware changes. And then the second thing is we're trying to reset software. So if you are spending all day sitting down with a laptop or on your phone or driving, a lot of us have our head forward like that. And and when your head is perfectly balanced in your head, it's, it's about five kg. Like it's, it's a crazy mm. weight. Five, I don't know if you know what, if you can uh, uh, remember what five kg feels like. But when I take someone's head here when I'm doing therapy work and I'm holding the, the, the full weight of their head, I'm literally bowled over by how heavy it is. It's like it's, it's a crazy weight. So when you have it on your shoulders and, and you know, if your runners are, are going there or there's anyone out there listening to this while they're running, if you're standing upright, you, you don't feel the head at all. But if you slowly start to let the head fall forward, lots of different things change. So your uh, the head becomes heavier. It becomes not just five kilos, but like seven, nine kilos. And then when you're running, it's twice your body weight. So you multiply that by two. So it could be anywhere from um, 14 to 18 kilos you're feeling with every single step you take with this head on your shoulders. That causes your neck, shoulder, your neck, your neck and trapezius muscles to be tight. You'll get pains in the back of your shoulder blades, especially on the longer runs or after them. And so when we do the chest openers, um, we, we're, we're making changes to the, to the tissue, but we're also resetting the software to say, oh, this is where I should be. I shouldn't be forward like I was all day long sitting at my desk. I need to be upright and balanced with good posture when I run. And then we're more likely to run with that good posture. So we're kind of resetting software. We've been running bad software if we're slouched over at our laptop. And then we're kind of resetting that software to say, oh, we're upright now. And there's other tools we use to do that as well. Well, you were just talking there, Jason, about the, the top of the body. Let me bring it right down to the other side of the body and talk about the toes, because one of the things that you do as part of the assessment is you look at toe strength and toe flexibility. And people might laugh at that, but it, it is actually important that you can actually flex out your toes, isn't it? Um, and it's actually a, a key part of being a healthy runner. Yeah, so the feet, uh, feet are kind of a dirty word in running. We think that we just put them away into our shoe and the shoe does the job for us. Where really, it's, it's we have this incredible bit of hardware uh, on the hanging off the boat of, uh, off the bottom of our uh, our shins called our called our our, our feet, and uh, a healthy foot um, is incredibly important. So some of the things I'm looking for in someone's foot is uh, how they pronate the foot, so that's how they roll in on it. 
how they supinate the foot, how they roll out on the foot. And if you don't have good pronation or supination in the feet, it actually has a knock-on effect all the way up to your spine and how, how far you can turn around. So um, when you look left, your left foot should supinate and your uh, right foot should pronate inwards. And you should be able to twist and corkscrew all the way around and look behind you. But if your foot is stuck, if you're not quite supinating on your left foot, it means some bones aren't articulating as far as they should. And then that has a, a knock-on effect to the next bone because he can't articulate as far then as well either. And then the next and the next, and it has a chain reaction all the way up to the top. And then the end result is you can't look around yourself as far as you should be able to. Um, mm -hmm. so that's one thing we look at there with the feet. So it, it affects on how we move our spine and look around. So if we've got a blockage down in the feet, we need to sort that out to, to get better mobility up in the spine. The other thing is we look at things like Morton's toe, uh, hammer toes, bunions, squash toes, and a lot of these uh, a lot of these um, problems come about from years of footwear. So you know when we were growing up, uh, on our folks put us in you know the best footwear that they thought. You know, and you, you know I hear it all the time from parents coming in and oh you know Johnny has a great pair of, of well supported shoes. It's it's Asics I think or something like this. They'll tell you. And I kind of cringe a little bit because I'm kind of like, you know, uh, they don't really understand that they're kind of messing up their kids' feet um, when they put them in these in this footwear. They're trying to make, uh, they're trying to use uh, shoe technology to compensate or to protect the foot when the foot has all the has everything it needs. Like we've we've evolved through thousands of years with this incredible uh, bit of equipment at the, at the, at the uh, on uh, the bottom of our legs. So when we're looking at uh, hammer toes and that and, and squash toes, we're looking to see um, if it's affecting maybe how they're walking or how they're running. And there's with some people, they're in such a bad state that they need to do sort of foot rehab. And we do particular exercises with them um, to, to change the shape of the foot. So ideally what you would look for in, in a great foot is something like a hobbit foot. Your foot should look like Frodo Baggins, basically. Yeah, well, it's something that I really enjoy doing. And as you mentioned, the Hobbits, as I'm watching TV series at nighttime and I'm enjoying um, the Rings of Power to my home and Jason, as I'm watching TV series at nighttime, I have my legs kind of spread out on the couch. And I actually love doing those toe exercises that you're mentioning there, trying to just increase that gap between my big toe and my fourth um, toe. And it's really enjoyable to do. And it's actually, it's a great challenge to try and get those five toes, first of all, fully moving and fully flexible and just trying to eliminate any, any tightness that's there, any blockage that's there to make sure that that squash toe syndrome is fully eliminated from all the office shoes and for, for the girls, all the high heels that they've been wearing over the years that do really squash the big toe right in up against the fourth toe. And it's, a, it's, it's a really enjoyable challenge to try and spread them all back out. When you, when you have, uh, when you think about when you have a, a squash foot, right, you've got a smaller base of support to land on now. And you're not going to be you're not going to be able to take as much force. You're not going to have as much power off. So yeah. you don't want a skinny looking little foot. You want a big monstrous foot with a, with a wide base of support on. And you yeah. can do there's two things that you can do for that. Um, there's like if, I know runners like equipment and all that sort of stuff. Um, so you know one great way of doing that is wear a wider shoe and get a shoe yeah. maybe which is. Uh, which allows your toes to go wider. So, you know, there's some, uh, there's more and more brands out there. So the one I like is would be Vivo Barefoot. They're a great one for a casual shoe or a, or a technique training shoe they're good for as well. 
And you can also get the likes of Altra, who have a wider toe box. And there's a few others out there. And so give, go up a size and, um, and just give your, your foot a bit uh, more space. But also be careful of wearing elasticated socks because elasticated socks, you could have the widest shoe possible. But if you're wearing elasticated socks, you're still in a, in a, your, your foot is still in a, in a, in a bad position. Other things you can do, you can get is um, correct toes, these type of little separators in between. And if your shoes are wide enough, you can wear them around all day long and even go on runs with them. And, okay. uh, and then you'll have a wider base of support when you're walking and running. So there are kind of little little things you can do to improve uh, foot health. And then also go barefoot as much as you can. So at home, most of us are working at home these days. Um, and uh, if, you, if you're out and about in the garden, kick off the shoes. And absolutely for the little people as well. I try to, I try not to put on shoes as much as possible onto my uh, one and a half year old Leia here. She is barefoot 99% of the time at the moment, which is great. Um, Jason, that's been an incredible um, review of that assessment that you do. Thanks a million. Very comprehensive. Just to talk about the practicalities of it, Jason, for anybody that's listening and wants to give you a shout, whether it's this side of Christmas or before, it'd be a great Christmas present for anybody that's listening as well. Um, how long does it take to get an appointment with you? How long does the actual assessment take itself? And maybe just even in terms of budget, how much would something like this cost? So um, I'm just going through my calendar here. So it's actually it's 15th of November is my next availability um, for that. We need it's it's kind of difficult to get these sessions in because we need a two hour block to do it. So yeah. It's a two hour session. Sometimes it even goes on a little bit longer if I'm not watching the clock um, and um, that costs 150 euros for that uh, okay. for the two hours and you also get your written report sent to you uh, a few days later with, with uh, your your specific homework I guess you could call it um, and then typically what what people would do then is maybe uh, every four to six weeks they drop back into me and we'd have a look to see what's stuck where they're maybe making mistakes if they need any therapy work we would do that at the same time and that's just our my normal therapy rates uh, uh, for any follow-ups typically i'd see someone maybe uh, for a follow-up for a running technique i might see them maybe three or four times three or four one-hour sessions after that over the course of maybe six months um maybe even longer and and generally then i don't see them for years because they're uninjured and then they come to me then when they have a problem and yeah then, when, when, when they need an nct check-in yeah that's it and then and when you look at them run they're usually making two just two simple mistakes for most people and, and for that it's most people um their their cadences drift down um a little bit too low or maybe they're not picking their feet up high enough and that's kind of it and then you just give them a little reminder they're like oh yeah that's what it used to feel like and then their injuries just tend to disappear then yeah, well, it's something that works so well. I said I did the full assessment um, a couple of years ago, Jason, and it helped me get out of my injury rut back in 2016, 17. It worked a treat. And I know even one of the athletes that I'm coaching now for Dublin has been in with you and he got the full assessment done. He got the full 10 page report as well. And he's going for hopefully a sub three hours, comfortable, a comfortable sub three hours now in, in what, 10 days' time. And he's coming for maybe, he's around three hours, 28. And with your help, and staying injury free and even a couple of niggles that he did have over the last couple of months he's got them sorted and hopefully we'll get him safely under three hours now next Sunday so listen thanks a million for your time great to hear that the business is going so well if you're booked out 
it's a sign that people are getting fantastic results from you. And if anybody is interested in that assessment, do get the booking in soon. A great Christmas present for any runner in the family as well. Jason, thanks a million for your time. And listen, best of luck with everything. And hopefully see you back racing and running maybe sometime soon as well. Sure. Oh, listen, thanks. I appreciate it very much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. That's a wrap for this week everybody thank you to jason and to renee for their great insights this week and to jason especially for his support of the show during the month of october and do make sure to give jason a shout if you feel the legs might need a helping hand over the winter months to reach their full potential in 2023 a quick reminder to pop over to patreon.com to support the show if you like what we do to help keep us going at the Trail Running Ireland podcast. And finally, good luck to all of our trail and mountain runners across the mountains of Italy this weekend and Thailand in just under a fortnight's time. And we even have a few Irish runners in the famous Transvulcania in La Palma this weekend too. What a great race that is. Everybody, let's get our running gear on. Let's go. Let's go.